This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. I'm Christy Shriver, and we're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit podcast. Today, we're finishing up our series on Shirley Jackson. Last week, we concluded our discussion of her most famous book, uh, the one that inspired the Netflix series by the same name, The Haunting of Hill House. Today, we're going to read the short story that made her a household name, and that's titled... The lottery. The lottery. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, it's had its share of movie inspirations, too, you know. Anyone who has seen the opening of The Hunger Games, that's the one that jumps out to me, <laughs> cannot possibly be shocked at the plot of The Lottery. But it's inspired a bunch of other stories and movies besides that one. You mentioned the Stephen King one last episode, and I'm sure there are more than that if we just sat here and tried to think of them all. Uh, true, and maybe I, I shouldn't have been, but I was actually surprised as to how scandalous this story was when it was first published. I mean, if we're talking solely about violence by today's standards, this is mild. I mean, <laughs> there's no blood or gore, and it's definitely no squid games. No, I, I agree, and I believe that is why this story, it's so deceptively simple and relatively tame is actually taught in many schools in the middle school curriculum, a lot of times in the eighth grade. It is disturbing, but for reasons beyond the fact that somebody is getting killed at the end. I mean, killing a main character really is just par for the course in a standard English curriculum. I mean, it's (laughs) even a big joke. You know, English teachers like to say, we don't teach a story unless we kill someone at the end. Oh, my. Uh, So the lottery reads and feels simple, and it is simple. Uh, so why the sensation? Well, let's talk about the sensation. I mean, it's definitely worth noticing how big a stir it actually created. The story generated more negative letters and subscription cancellations than anything the New Yorker had ever published. Jackson herself received over 300 letters just that summer that it was published. In her own words, and I like to quote her, she said this, I can count only 13 that spoke kindly to me. (laughs) 
I want to point out that her mother, the ever inspiring <laughs> Geraldine, Geraldine, could be counted on for a comment. Of she, course, she could. She wrote her daughter and said this: "Dad and I did not care at all for your story." It does seem, dear, that this gloomy kind of story is what all you young people think about these days. Why don't you write something to cheer people up? (laughs) Good old Geraldine. Well, at least she's consistent. Uh, But Jackson refused to explain the meaning of the story. Uh, for the most part, especially to her own editor. She did one time tell this to a journalist, and I'm going to quote her. I suppose I hoped by setting a particularly brutal right in the present and in my own village to shock the readers with a graphic demonstration of the pointless violence and general inhumanity of their own lives. But I gather that in some cases the mind just rebels. The number of people who expected Mrs. Hutchinson to win a Bendix washer at the end would amaze you. Oh, well, I don't know how pointless violence and uh, general inhumanity could have surprised anyone in 1948 when it was published. I mean, that was right after World War II, the world's biggest expression of violence and inhumanity. Uh, You know, the United States, people living here had to stare the reality in the face that, that we had stood by and turned a blind eye for almost a decade to the atrocities committed by Hitler. And there was no one more cultured or sophisticated than the German people at that time. Well, I guess that's true. Uh, but of course, for Americans, they could always say, quite self-righteously, uh, that we are not capable of such things. That's <laughs> them. <laughs> yes, well, we, after all, were the uh, victorious winners in that struggle between exactly. good and evil. and and yet Jackson's simple story does seem to be pointing an, an accusing finger at someone. Yes, I totally do think it points a finger uh, at us. And I want to take us in a different direction than many people who generally read and talk about the story. Because at first pass, and this is how the story is traditionally discussed, at least from what I've heard, uh, this is a story that rails against tradition about not questioning authority, specifically religious authority. It's a story about uh, the patriarchy. And those are all very, you know, kind of easy things to attack. And they're very common to attack these kind of things, at least in our American canon. They're common to the point of not being sophisticated. Exactly. Uh, well, and, and this is not just in the arena of literature either. Uh This country's been attacking cultural norms in one way or another since Americans invented baseball as its own American (laughs) sports ritual over the sport of the British Empire, which is football, or better known here as soccer. Well, you know, even soccer is actually a British word, but we won't go there. I guess it's true. Uh, We have a way higher tolerance for gore, too, than people would suggest. I mean, I don't think they're, you know, people were offended by that. I mean, for years, we've been talking about the Headless Horseman. We have the Telltale Heart from Edgar Allan Poe. There was just something personal about the lottery that went beyond attacking traditions or killing innocent victims. I also don't think many of us would cancel our subscriptions to our favorite magazine, or nowadays, I guess we'd say our favorite media streaming service, and no way would we take the trouble of digging up an author's personal address, 
writing them a letter, buying a stamp, and sending it off unless we did not feel personally attacked in some way. I mean, the lottery got under people's skins, and I think it just has to be because it was personal. So the question that I think we should ask is, why? If this story is about pointless violence and general inhumanity, and if I'm offended and I'm just a regular, ordinary person, uh, how am I feeling accused? Yeah, and and why? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so let's start, Christy. Uh, We talked about if we should read the entire story and then discuss it, or if we should stop and start. We've decided to stop and start, but hopefully we won't stop and start too much to be (laughs) confusing. But just enough to be helpful, which is, you know, a difficult balance to strike. Well, it is, and I hope we don't fail. So let's give it a try. Let's start with reading the first uh, three paragraphs, and then we'll interrupt. The morning of June 27th was clear and sunny with the fresh warmth of a full summer day. The flowers were blossoming profusely, and the grass was richly green. The people of the village began to gather in the square between the post office and the bank around 10 o'clock. In some towns, there were so many people that the lottery took two days and had to be started on June 26th. But in this village, where there were only about 300 people, the whole lottery took less than two hours. So it could begin at 10 o'clock in the morning and still be through in time to allow the villagers to get home for noon dinner. The children assembled first, of course. School was recently over for the summer, and the feeling of liberty sat uneasily on most of them. They tended to gather together quietly for a while before they broke into boisterous play, and their talk was still of the classroom and the teacher and of books and reprimands. Bobby Martin had already stuffed his pockets full of stones, and the other boys soon followed his example, selecting the smoothest and the roundest stones. Bobby and Harry Jones and Dickie Delacroix, the villagers pronounced his name Delacroix, eventually made a great pile of stones in one corner of the square and guarded against the raids of the other boys. The girls stood aside, talking among themselves, looking over their shoulders at the boys, and the very small children rolled in the dust or clung to the hands of their older brothers and sisters. Soon the men began to gather surveying their own children, speaking of planting and rain, tractors and taxes. They stood together away from the pile of stones in the corner, and their jokes were quiet, and they smiled rather than laughed. The women, wearing faded house dresses and sweaters, came shortly after their menfolk. They greeted one another and exchanged bits of gossip as they went to join their husbands. Soon the women, standing by their husbands, began to call to their children, and the children came reluctantly, having to be called four or five times. Bobby Martin ducked under his mother's grasping arm and ran, laughing, back to the pile of stones. His father spoke up sharply, and Bobby came quickly and took his place between his father and his oldest brother. Well, what are your thoughts on that? Well, the first thing that strikes me here is tone, the author's attitude. Look at the imagery and the word choice. It's summer. There is fresh warmth. There are flowers blooming. They're not just grass. It's richly green grass. I mean, this is the language of birth and beauty. There's also a deliberate attempt to characterize these people as organized and civilized. 
The lottery is annual. It takes less than two hours. They eat a noon dinner. The children don't gather. They assemble. Assemble is a formal word. There's a reference to the school. They're being instructed and civilized, so to speak, deliberately. They throw around that word liberty. And yet, what are they doing? They're stuffing their pockets full of stones, even the very small children. They assemble as family units, the very bedrock of civilization across time and culture. They stand together, united, and for a purpose that is upsetting to absolutely no one. Let's read the next four paragraphs and learn about the culture and tradition of this place. The lottery was conducted, as were the square dances, the teen club, the Halloween program, by Mr. Summers, who had time and energy to devote to civic activities. He was a round-faced, jovial man, and he ran the coal business, and people were sorry for him because he had no children, and his wife was a scold. When he arrived in the square carrying a black wooden box, there was a murmur of conversation among the villagers, and he waved and called, "'Little late today, folks!' The postmaster, Mr. Graves, followed him carrying a three-legged stool, and the stool was put in the center of the square, and Mr. Summers set the black box down on it. The villagers kept their distance, leaving a space between themselves and the stool, and when Mr. Summers said, Some of you fellows want to give me a hand, there was a hesitation before two men. Mr. Martin and his oldest son, Baxter, came forward to hold the box steady on the stool while Mr. Summers stirred up the papers inside it. The original paraphernalia for the lottery had been lost long ago, and the black box now resting on the stool had been put into use even before old man Warner, the oldest man in town, was born. Mr. Summers spoke frequently to the villagers about making a new box, but no one liked to upset even as much tradition as was represented by the black box. There was a story that the present box had been made with some pieces of the box that had preceded it, the one that had been constructed when the first people settled down to make a village here. Every year after the lottery, Mr. Summers began talking again about a new box, but every year the subject was allowed to fade off without any things being done. The black box grew shabbier each year. By now it was no longer completely black, but splintered badly along one side to show the original wood color and in some places faded or stain. Mr. Martin and his oldest son, Baxter, held the black box securely on the stool until Mr. Summers had stirred the papers thoroughly with his hand. Because so much of the ritual had been forgotten or discarded, Mr. Summers had been successful in having slips of paper substituted for the chips of wood that had been used for generations. Chips of wood, Mr. Summers had argued, had been all very well when the village was tiny, but now that the population was more than 300 and likely to keep on growing, it was necessary to use something that would fit more easily into the black box. The night before the lottery, Mr. Summers and Mr. Graves made up the slips of paper and put them in the box, and it was then taken to the safe of Mr. Summers' coal company and locked up until Mr. Summers was ready to take it to the square the next morning. The rest of the year, the box was put away, sometimes one place, sometimes another. It had spent one year in Mr. Graves' barn and another year underfoot in the post office, and sometimes it was set on a shelf in the Martin Grocery and left there. There was a great deal of fussing to be done before Mr. Summers declared the lottery open. There were the lists to make up of heads of families, heads of households in each family, members of each household in each family. 
There was the proper swearing in of Mr. Summers by the postmaster as the official of the lottery. At one time, some people remembered there had been a recital of some sort performed by the official of the lottery, a perfunctory, tuneless chant that had been rattled off duly each year. Some people believed that the official of the lottery used to stand just so when he said or sang it. Others believed that he was supposed to walk among the people. But years and years ago, this part of the ritual had been allowed to lapse. There had been also a ritual salute, which the official of the lottery had had to use in addressing each person who came up to draw from the box. But this also had changed with time. Until now, it was felt necessary only for the official to speak to each person approaching. Mr. Summers was very good at all this. In his clean white shirt and blue jeans, with one hand resting carelessly on the black box, he seemed very proper and important as he talked interminably to Mr. Graves and the Martins. One funny thing that Jackson does on the story is she plays around with these names. The names, obviously, are carefully selected. She just doesn't pick random you know, names. Uh, look at who's conducting all this. Uh, that man is named Mr. Summers. Such a happy name. Associated with youth. And it is summer, <laughs> after all. Strength, growth, life, all of it. But then, look, he's uh, juxtaposed with this other guy, Mr. Graves, who is also is responsible for making up the slips of paper and putting the names in the black box. And, of course, that's a pun. A grave is a place where we put a dead body. It's also very serious, like if you're in grave danger. The black box one time spent a year in Mr. Graves' barn, but that's not the only place that the black box lives. He is not solely responsible for this black box. It spent a year in the post office and also in the grocery store owned by Mr. Martin, who I guess is the father of the little Martin who's putting the stones in his pocket. Another thing that people have pointed out uh, is to other possible um, symbolisms in this or other possible symbols in this book uh, has to do with the three-legged stool. That is probably or likely a symbol. So you have the symbol of the black box. You have this three-legged stool. There's the black mark. That could be a symbol. And even the stones are symbolic. But a symbol is only a symbol if it's representing something. So you have to wonder, well, what could these things be representing? Uh, we don't know yet. We're still kind of early. So we should just annotate and follow the symbols if we think they are that. Uh, I usually you know, try to withhold judgment on that sort of thing to finish the story. But let's look at some of these other names because there's lots of other names that kind of stand out. There's one that was brought up earlier, but we didn't uh, talk about it then. This name, Delacroix, uh, if that's, you know, that's how you would normally pronounce it. Mm -hmm. And we've gotten, and we've got more names, a lot of names, actually. One that showed up earlier, but we didn't address it, is the name Delacroix. Uh, we're even told uh, the correct pronunciation as they pronounce it. Well, Delacroix is French for of the cross. Yes, except they've changed it. If you want to say they mispronounce it, if you're French, they don't say Delacroix like the French might, or, you know, that's my version of how the French might say it. They say Delacroix. Now, that's a corruption of the original, and she deliberately wants to highlight that. That sets me up for what I might see as a pattern as you read through these traditions. Traditions are not 
fixed. Like names aren't fixed. Uh, we think of traditions as being things that never change, but that's not true here. Well, no, they evolve like everything else on planet Earth. I mean, uh, we keep what we want and we discard what we don't like. And, you know, on my wall, uh, I have a poster that says this, and I quote it all the time. All behavior is goal-directed 100% of the time. Uh, and that goes for entire cultures as well. And no matter what we say, our behaviors speak for us, and they are all goal-directed. And this is true for traditions as well, whether it's religious or ethical or, or civic. Jackson uses a lot of ambiguity in the story, and she's very ambiguous here about this relationship uh, with religion. I want to point out that this is not a religious ceremony, and it could have easily been made one, and it would be understandable if she had. Mr. Summers could have been Pastor Summers or Father Summers or Rabbi Summers, but he's none of these. He's a businessman, and I want to suggest what I think here about that three-legged stool, even though I know it's early on. I do think it represents what's holding up society in general. There's three aspects of this stool, if you want to think of it as three aspects of societal authority or control. We have religious, we have civic, and we have commercial. And all three legs hold up that black box. All three elements of society working together, but none is running the show exclusively. Well, um, if we're going to be doing all this guessing at symbolism, (laughs) I want to make a suggestion of my own. All right. What do you suggest? Uh, that black box. All right. It's power. Uh, it's control. Um, uh, it, it's black because fear controls. It's dynamic uh, in that it moves and it evolves over time as power does. And it's uh, cloaked in secrecy and it hides behind tradition. But uh, what we see, that, that isn't necessarily true. They went from chips to paper when they wanted to. Uh, what they wanted to hold was the black box of power. Uh, I also want to point out that somehow Jackson subtly connects her ritual with this black box and three-legged stool to the harvest, which I found to be a particularly interesting connection. It's a link to survival, and it's at the heart of human existence. I mean, uh, the ancient Athenians and the Aztecs and the the Incans on this side of the world, just to name a few, uh, but many cultures have connected human sacrifice to crop fertility, and in fact, And this may be a point of irony. If you just look across human history from the Egyptians to the Chinese to everybody else, what we see is human sacrifice correlates directly with a rise in a more sophisticated culture and social stratification than the other way around, contrary to what old man Warner is suggesting. (laughs) Uh, What do you mean by that? Uh, I mean that we can see historically as societies got more sophisticated and organized, we saw more and more links to human sacrifice. Oh, wow. You're right. That That is quite counterintuitive, even though maybe if I think about it in the element of control, it makes a little bit more sense than just being primitive. Um, of course, I was thinking more closer to home and the Judeo-Christian culture, which, of course, is Jackson's culture and what she's familiar with. There's some things that are, again, I think obviously connected. There's a very deep tradition in Christianity of sacrifice, but it's not human sacrifice. I I don't think you can make a a claim that this story is a direct attack on Christianity per se, by the way, 
But she does use, uh, in my opinion, quite a bit of Christian imagery and not just with Delacroix or Delacroix of the cross. Uh, there's a connection with the publicly sanctioned and even religiously sanctioned concept of public stonings that's in the Bible. We see it in the Old Testament. Uh, but we also see a very famous reference uh, you, with Jesus directly in the New Testament. There's a particular story. In fact, it's one of the most famous stories in the New Testament. It comes right out of the eighth chapter of the book of St. John, where a group of men want to stone a woman because they caught her in the act of adultery. They take her outside and they all gather stones and they're ready to murder this woman when Jesus intervenes. He takes a stick and starts writing something in the sand. We're never told what it is exactly. But he famously says, he who is without sin casts the first stone. The men, slowly but surely, they look down and read whatever it is he's writing and they drop their stones and they go home. Of course, we don't know what he wrote. I like to speculate that it was the names of their paramours, but that's just me enjoying the irony. I have no reason to believe that. But uh, the story ends with Jesus looking at the woman and asking her where her, her accusers have gone, because at that point there is no one left. So you see that story connecting here? Yeah, I really do. Uh, there are other Christian references too. Obviously, Mrs. Adams, that's the name of the first man. There's Eva, but then there's Old Man Warner. Now, Old Man Warner, that's not a biblical name, but there is a biblical connection back to Jesus in the New Testament. Uh, by the way, these biblical references are not obscure. Uh, they're super famous passages that every red-blooded American in 1950 would be familiar with. But in the New Testament, there's a different story where a follower of Jesus asks Jesus how many times a person should be responsible for forgiving another person of their offenses. And the follower said, do you think seven times is enough? To which Jesus famously responds, you should forgive a person 70 times seven, which I think is interesting here is the name, not the name of Mr. Warner, but his age and this archetypal link because he's 77 years old. <laughs> so what's the connection? I don't, I don't think the story is talking about uh, adultery or forgiveness, is it? Not directly. It's talking about values and core values and hypocrisy for sure. And we'll flesh it out when we get to the end. But what I want to point out is that people have somehow found their value in surviving this tradition. In other words, I don't get picked. That's how I get my value. Mr. Warner brags that he survived 77 of these without getting picked. He's important because of that. Uh, Old Man Warner also makes the claim that he is literally, and this is literally a, an, an example of a post hoc fallacy, which is an error in logic. If you believe that something is connected just because it happened before, there's no logic. But he literally says that the harvest comes as a direct result of the lottery. He doesn't invoke any deity to make this happen. He just throws the fact that it happens first out there as the reason. He's resistant to change because he's validated by this current social order. Well, I can see why lots of people think this story is about accepting things just because they've always been done that way. I mean, Warner clearly makes that argument and holds down that point of view. 
Of course, that's obvious and it's obviously there. It's just not the heart of the story. I want to bring up one other name before we finish and get to the famous punchline. The name Tessie Hutchinson. If we look to history, there is one famous Hutchinson woman who stands out in American history. Anne Hutchinson. She showed up in Chapter 1 of The Scarlet Letter 2, which, by the way, I think there's a connected theme to this story. (laughs) But anyway, uh, you're the history guy. So tell us, who is Anne Hutchinson from early American history? Oh, Anne Hutchinson was a fascinating character. I mean, we're going way back now. Uh, She was born in 1591. And later in life, she was banished to the colony of Rhode Island after being excommunicated from Massachusetts Bay Colony for uh, teaching, among other things, that uh, women could read and be in leadership. Um, and But mostly her teachings about the Bible were considered heretical, and they were certainly confrontational to the authorities of the church in that time period. Anyway, later on, after she was expelled, she actually ends up being murdered by Indians in 1643. It's a sad ending. She was definitely cast out of the group. (laughs) Well, there's a connection. Let's finish reading the story and see where all of these swirling ideas will take us. Just as Mr. Summers finally left off talking and turned to the assembled villagers, Mrs. Hutchison came hurriedly along the path to the square, her sweater thrown over her shoulders, and slid into place in the back of the crowd. Clean forgot what day it was, she said to Miss Delacroix, who stood next to her, and they laughed softly. Thought my old man was out back stacking wood, Mrs. Hutchison went on. And I looked out the window, and the kids were gone, and then I remembered it was the 27th and came a-running. She dried her hands on her apron, and Mrs. Delacroix said, They're still talking away up there. Mrs. Hutchison craned her neck to see through the crowd and found her husband and children standing near the front. She tapped Mrs. Delacroix on the arm as a farewell and began to make her way through the crowd. The people separated good-humoredly to let her through. Two or three people said, in voices just loud enough to be heard across the crowd, Here comes your Mrs. Hutchison, and Bill, she made it after all. Mrs. Hutchison reached her husband, and Mr. Summers, who had been waiting, said cheerfully, Thought we were going to have to get on without you, Tessie. Mrs. Hutchison said, grinning, wouldn't have me leave my dishes in the sink now, would you, Joe? And soft laughter ran through the crowd as the people stirred back into position in Mr. S- after Mr. Hutchison's arrival. Well now, Mr. Summer said soberly, guess we better get started. Get this over with so as we can get back to work. Anybody ain't here? Dunbar, several people said. Dunbar, Dunbar. Mr. Summers consulted his list. Clyde Dunbar, he said. That's right. He's broke his leg, hasn't he? Who's drawing for him? Me, I guess, a woman said, and Mr. Summers turned to look at her. Wife draws for her husband, Mr. Summers said. Don't you have a grown boy to do it for you, Janie? Although Mr. Summers and everyone else in the village knew the answer perfectly well, it was the business of the official of the lottery to ask such questions formally. Mr. Summers waited with an expression of polite interest while Mrs. Dunbar answered. Horse is not 16 yet. Miss Dunbar said regretfully, Guess I got a fill-in for the old man this year. Right, Mr. Summer said. He made a note on the list he was holding. Then he asked, Watson boy drawing this year? A tall boy in a crowd raised his hand. Here, he said, I'm drawing for my mother and me. He blinked his eyes nervously and ducked his head as several voices in the crowd said things like, Good fellow, Jack, and glad to see your mother's got a man to do it. Well, Mr. Summer said, Guess that's everyone. Old man Warner make it? 
Here, a voice said, and Mr. Summers nodded. A sudden hush fell on the crowd as Mr. Summers cleared his throat and looked at the list. All ready, he called. Now I'll read the names, heads of families first, and then the men come up and take a paper out of the box. Keep the paper folded in your hand without looking at it until everyone has had a turn. Everything clear? The people had done it so many times that they only half listened to the directions. Most of them were quiet, wetting their lips, not looking around. Soon, Mr. Summers raised one hand high and said, Adams, a man disengaged himself from the crowd and came forward. Hi, Steve, Mr. Summers said, and Mr. Adams said, Hi, Joe. They grinned at one another humorlessly and nervously. Then Mr. Adams reached into the black box and took out a folded paper. He held it firmly by one corner as he turned and went hastily back to his place in the crowd. There he stood a little apart from his family, not looking down at his hand. Allen, Mr. Summers said, Anderson, Bentham. Seems like there's no time at all between lotteries anymore, Mrs. Delacroix said to Mrs. Graves in the back row. Seems like we got through with the last one only last week. Time sure goes fast, Mrs. Graves said. Clark Delacroix. There goes my old man, Mrs. Delacroix said. She held her breath while her husband went forward. Dunbar, Mr. Summers said, and Mrs. Dunbar went steadily to the box while one of the women said, Go on, Janie, and another said, There she goes. Where next, Mrs. Graves said. She watched while Mr. Graves came around from the side of the box, greeted Mr. Summers gravely, and selected a slip of paper from the box. By now, all through the crowd, there were men holding the small folded papers in their large hand, turning them over and over nervously. Mrs. Dunbar and her two sons stood together, Mrs. Dunbar holding the slip of paper. Herbert Hutchison. Get up there, Bill, Mrs. Hutchison said, and the people near her laughed. Jones. They do say, Mr. Adams said, old man Warner stood next to him, that over in the North Village, they're talking of giving up the lottery. Old man Warner snorted. Pack of crazy fools, he said. Listening to the young folks, nothing's good enough for them. Next thing you know, they'll be wanting to go back to living in caves. Nobody work anymore. Live hat away for a while. Used to be a saying about lottery in June, corn be heavy soon. First thing you know, we'd all be eating stewed chickweed acorns. There's always been a lottery, he added petulantly. Bad enough to see young Joe Summers up there joking with everybody. Some places have already quit lotteries, Mrs. Adams said. Nothing but trouble in that, old man Warner said stoutly. Pack of young fools. Martin and Bobby Martin watched his father go forward. Overdyke. Percy. I wish they'd hurry, Mrs. Dunbar said to her older son. I wish they'd hurry. They're almost through, her son said. You get ready to run till dad, Mrs. Dunbar said. Mr. Summers called his own name and then stepped forward precisely and selected a slip from the box. Then he called Warner. 77th year I've been in the lottery, old man Warner said as he went through the crowd. 77th time. Watson. The tall boy came awkwardly through the crowd. Someone said, don't be nervous, Jack. And Mr. Summers said, take your time, son. Zanini. After that, there was a long pause, a breathless pause, until Mr. Summers, holding his slip of paper in the air, said, All right, fellows. For a minute, no one moved, and then all the slips of paper were opened. Suddenly, all the women began to speak at once, saving, Who is it? Who's got it? Is it the Dunbars? Is it the Watsons? Then the voices began to say, 
It's Hutchison. It's Bill. Bill Hutchison's got it. Go tell your father, Mrs. Dunbar said to her older son. People began to look around to see the Hutchisons. Bill Hutchison was standing quiet, staring down at the paper in his hand. Suddenly, Tessie Hutchison shouted to Mr. Summers, You didn't give him time enough to take any paper he wanted. I saw you. It wasn't fair. Be a good sport, Tessie, Mrs. Delacroix called, and Mrs. Graves said, All of us took the same chance. Shut up, Tessie, Bill Hutchison said. Well, everyone, Mr. Summers said, that was done pretty fast. And now we've got to be hurrying a little more to get done in time. He consulted his next list. Bill, he said, you draw for the Hutchison family. You got any other households in the Hutchisons? There's Don and Eva, Mrs. Hutchison yelled. Make them take their chance. Daughters draw with their husbands' families, Tessie, Mr. Summers said gently. You know that as well as anyone else. It wasn't fair, Tessie said. I guess not, Joe. Bill Hutchison said regretfully, My daughter draws with her husband's family. That's only fair, and I've got no other family except the kids. Then as far as drawing for families is concerned, it's you, Mr. Summers said in explanation. And as far as drawing for households is concerned, that's you too, right? Right, Bill Hutchison said. How many kids, Bill? Mr. Summers asked formally. Three, Bill Hutchison said. There's Bill... There's Bill Jr. and Nancy and little Dave and Tessie and me. All right, then, Mr. Summer said. Harry, you got their tickets back? Mr. Graves nodded and held up the slips of paper. Put them in the box, then, Mr. Summers directed. Take Bill's and put it in. I think we ought to start over, Mrs. Hutchison said as quietly as she could. I tell you, it wasn't fair. You didn't give him time enough to choose. Everybody saw that. Mr. Graves had selected the five slips and put them in the box, and he dropped all the papers but those on the ground where the breeze caught them and lifted them off. Listen, everybody, Mrs. Hutchison was saying to the people around her. Ready, Bill? Mr. Summers asked. And Bill Hutchison, with one quick glance around his wife and children, nodded. Remember, Mr. Summers said, take the slips and keep them folded until each person has taken one. Harry, you help little Dave. Mr. Graves took the hand of the little boy who came willingly with him up to the box. Take a paper out of the box, Davy, Mr. Summers said. Davy put his hand in the box and laughed. Take just one paper, Mr. Summers said. Harry, you hold it for him. Mr. Graves took the child's hand and removed the folded paper from the tight fist and held it while the little Dave stood next to him and looked up at him wonderingly. Nancy next, Mr. Summers said. Nancy was 12, and her school friends breathed heavily as she went forward, switching in her skirt, and took a slip daintily from the box. Bill Jr., Mr. Summers said, and Billy, his face red and his feet over large, near knocked the box over as he got a paper out. Tessie, Mr. Summers said. She hesitated for a minute, looking around defiantly, and then set her lips and went up to the box. She snatched a paper out and held it behind her. Bill, Mr. Summers said, and Bill Hutchison reached into the box and felt around, bringing his hand out at last with a slip of paper in it. The crowd was quiet. A girl whispered, I hope it's not Nancy, and the sound of the whisper reached the edges of the crowd. It's not the way it used to be, old man Warner said clearly. People ain't the way they used to be. All right, Mr. Summers said, open the papers. Harry, you open little Dave's. Mr. Graves opened a slip of paper, and there was a general sigh through the crowd as he held it up, and everyone could see that it was blank. 
Nancy and Bill Jr. opened theirs at the same time, and both beamed and laughed, turning around to the crowd and holding their slips of paper above their heads. Tessie, Mr. Summers said. There was a pause, and then Mr. Summers looked at Bill Hutchison, and Bill unfolded his paper and showed it. It was blank. It's Tessie, Mr. Summers said, and his voice was hushed. Show us her paper, Bill. Bill Hutchison went over to his wife and forced the slip of paper out of her hand. It had a black spot on it. The black spot Mr. Summers had made the night before with a heavy pencil in the coal company office. Bill Hutchison held it up, and there was a stir in the crowd. All right, folks, Mr. Summers said, let's finish quickly. Although the villagers had forgotten a ritual and lost the original black box, they still remembered to use stones. The pile of stones the boys had made earlier was ready. There were stones on the ground with the blowing scraps of paper that had come out of the box. Delacroix selected a stone so large she had to pick it up with both hands and turned to Mrs. Dunbar. Come on, she said. Hurry up. Mr. Dunbar had small stones in his hands, and she said, grasping for breath, I can't run at all. You'll have to go ahead, and I'll catch up with you. The children had stones already, and someone gave little Davy Hutchison a few pebbles. Tessie Hutchison was in the center of a cleared space by now, and she held her hands out desperately as the villagers moved in on her. It isn't fair, she said. A stone hit her on the side of the head. Old man Warner was saying, Come on, come on, everyone. Steve Adams was in the front of the crowd of the villagers with Mrs. Graves beside him. It isn't fair. It isn't right, Mrs. Hutchins screamed, and then they were upon her. Uh, well, Mrs. Hutchinson doesn't win a Bendix washer, that's for sure. I mean, <laughs> no. You know the psychologist Carl Jung, as you know, I like his work, stated that even uh, more or less civilized people remain inwardly primitive. We don't like thinking this, so uh, we can justify it with this mass psyche. I mean, the group becomes the hypnotic focus of fascination, um, and we can allow ourselves to fall into some sort of spell. I mean, that's the word that he used. And the group experience lowers the level of consciousness like the psyche of an animal. So we don't have to take responsibility for our actions uh, on an individual level. It, it, it's not a murder. It's a ritual. I mean, how could it be? It's sanctioned by the group, right? Well, uh it seems they understand it that way, but I think it's <laughs> definitely murder. And this is where I see all of Jackson's ambiguities emerge. I mean, her story can be interpreted, you know, various different ways. And the first one is that idea that there isn't any moral conflict. I mean, what's the psychological explanation? Even later on, you know, when you wake up from this, you know, mob fog, shouldn't you? They do this every year. <laughs> They do. And uh, I have to reference the Milgram experiment here. Do I have a moment for psych nerd talk? <laughs> sure. So Stanley Milgram did this extremely famous experiment on conformity and obedience. Um, and it was really an attempt to decide why good people would do bad things, a la the Nazis in, in Germany in World War II. And anyway, the Milgram experiment, you had uh, a person who was the teacher with quotes around it, and you had a student in the other room. The teacher would ask a question. If the student got it wrong in the other room, the teacher would administer an electric shock. And this was supposed to go up in increments all the way up to 450 volts. The important part of the experiment was that the student was not actually getting shocked. The whole experiment was about measuring and seeing how far humans would go 
in their conformity and their obedience into hurting other people. And letting that teacher shock somebody in front of them. Right. And the only source of authority in the room was a person standing in a lab coat saying, continue, continue, in a monotone voice. And there was a shockingly high number of people that went all the way to 450 volts of shock. When the experiment was being set up, most people who were involved in the experiment thought only a very small percentage would do the maximum uh, pain inflicting. And they found out, no, the majority of the group would do it. So if they were told to do it, they would say, well, he told me to do it. Well, they yes. Authority figures relieved you of some sense of responsibility in injuring other people. So Mr. Summers and Mr. Graves, by virtue of being the person handing out, that doesn't it makes it less people's. Right, and it's, it's interesting how mechanical they make the whole thing. Yeah, it is very mechanical. But uh, I do want to, uh, that's one way to look at it. I think if there's another name, to look, another way to look at it. First of all, this is a nameless village, and obviously it's full of tradition. I saw a little indication that there might be some corruption. I The guys in charge, they selected their sheet of paper. But mm-hmm. anyway, everything is very civilized. It's very warm. The people, what's remarkable to me and what I find most interesting is how nice everyone is to each other. How polite. <laughs> All the way until Mrs. Delacroix picks up the largest stone she could find with which she was going to pelt her very good friend, Mrs. Hutchinson, unto death. Jackson was asked about this many times and uh, she never explained it and she even downplayed it. In an essay where she finally talked about it, this is what she had to say about the story. I had written the story three weeks before being published. The idea had come to me while I was pushing my daughter up the hill in her stroller. It was, as I say, a warm morning, and the hill was steep, and beside my daughter the strollers held the day's groceries, and perhaps the effort of that last fifty yards up the hill put me on edge to the story at any rate. I had the idea fairly clearly in my mind when I put my daughter in her playpen and the frozen vegetables in the refrigerator. In writing the story, I found that it went quickly and easily, moving from beginning to end without pause. I'll skip to whether to to she gets to the final line. She said this. It was just a story I wrote. (laughs) (laughs) Except it wasn't. Uh, You know, it it was her uh, lived experience in Bennington. Uh, Everyone was so nice to each other, uh, centered on civic contribution and religion and family structure, and uh, yet ready to pelt each other with the largest stone they could find. I mean, given the uh, psychological past to do so with impunity. And I think that's where we land. And I think that is what makes people angry. We are nice people, but we're not always kind people. We are civilized, but we are not forgiving. We're religious, but our religion can be molded, sometimes not out of old sacred texts, but out of the box of power that sits on that three-legged stool of our conveniently created social structures that we conveniently remold over the years as the control goes from house to house. Maybe we're not good. We are what we have always been, Hmm. ready not just to hurl that first stone, But, and this is the part that's the most disconcerting, ready to bring our children along, get them to fill up their pockets with stones, and all on a beautiful 
summer day. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, that hurts. I mean, uh, well, there you go. We sum it up. Uh, we hope you have enjoyed our discussion of one of America's most famous short stories. Uh, next week, we will find the anecdote to this raw exposure to humanity. Uh, and we're going to find it through the writings of another American native son. Walt Whitman and selections from his wonderful masterpiece, Leaves of Grass. We hope you stick around to see what that great American has to say. And as always, please support us by pushing us out on your social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, LinkedIn, skywriting, whatever it is you do. <laughs> Text an episode to a friend. Uh, if you're a teacher, visit our website at howtolovelitpodcast.com to find listening guides for all of our episodes. Peace out. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.